So Sarah, I don't know if you remember this, but your notes for this conversation before we had it were this, and this is a like a behind the scenes look at our podcast, because sometimes we'll have these notes in our podcast outlines. So you wrote, expect this to be a casual vibe, hilarious interaction, lighthearted, fun conversation, exclamation point. <laughs> you remember that? Yes, I do. Oh, that's funny. You know, I would say that this was exactly what this next conversation was in a nutshell. It totally was. I was thinking that that's what the vibe would be and that maybe we'd probably discuss some stuff like her upcoming book and plans and more. But it was really a conversation that was about so many other facets of life than we had planned out. And it also kind of seemed like the perfect conversation to air this holiday week. So if this doesn't make you want to hear more about Rebecca and Becky in the fall coming up from author Christine Platt, we do not know what will. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps model and normalize conversations around race and racism so that we can help more white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. We're ready to kick it off. Would you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Hi, everyone. I am Christine Platt, also known as the Afro-Minimalist and also known as a whole bunch of stuff, but basically I'm a mom, woman, empty nester, all the things. And I'm just learning to love and embrace life. I have accepted that I am not a grown woman, that I'm a growing woman. And that is why I love chatting with y'all. And so, yeah, happy to be on the show. I'm so glad you're here. I laughed a little when you said a growing woman, because recently, honestly, we've had you on our show when we focused on the Afro-Minimalist book. And that has continued to impact my life two years later. And even last time, Misasha and I had a work gig here in Colorado. And when she came out, I said, okay, while I have you here, I'm going to put you to work going through my closet because you know me more than anybody and you know my fashion sense, you know, and she has the style and she's like, you've had these shoes since we bought them together in our 20s. It is time to get rid of them. You don't wear them. And so she had the authority to help me curate <laughs> my style as well. Sometimes that's what it takes, man. Sometimes it <laughs> takes a friend, you know, and it's interesting. I tell folks all the time, like, just as we are constantly evolving as, as human beings, right? Like our style evolves, our interest evolves, all of these things evolve. And you all will be surprised because I think the last time I was on the show, I was like jumpsuit queen, right? I loved myself a good jumpsuit mainly because I hated pairing tops and bottoms, which I still do. But when I did my last, I call it a KonMari, <laughs> I go through my closet quarterly. When I did my last KonMari closet reorg, I got rid of a lot of jumpsuits. Like I felt like I had evolved from that sort of style and moment. And of course, there are always friends, hands out waiting. Like I could not wait for you to part with that. But it's been interesting to rediscover, reevaluate, you know, and commit to what is my new style evolution as an empty nester. I realized like I hated pairing tops and bottoms because time is everything as a mother. And now I'm an empty nester and I have a lot more time. I'm like, I can just kind of sit here and well, you think about what I, I didn't have that kind of time in the mornings, you know? And so, oh, I know that. <laughs> 
But that's great to embrace that process of growing, right? And that's so much about that action and how much more engaged are we in life if we see ourselves as growing women, because that means we have to intentionally show up every day and be willing to just do something. It takes so much pressure off. Like I used to find myself saying things like, I should know better. Like I'm grown, right? And then to be able to flip that same scenario and say like, wow, I really learned something new here. I am really growing and evolving. Like it just even shifts your own personal narrative and the way that you respond to just these moments in life that are inevitable, right? This is always going to be these highs and lows, these highs and lows. And I feel like when I respond to them, as a growing woman, I just am able to extend myself a lot more grace and empathy. I'm able to extend a lot more empathy to others, right? It's this idea like you're grown, you should know better. And it's like, no, I'm growing, you know? And so, yeah, it's been a, I'm growing as an empty nester. As you all know, this is Nala's second year in college. That first year I was not as, you see, I'm like kind of glowing and happy and like, that was not me year one. <laughs> I have grown as an empty nester. <laughs> I'll say that. And again, just giving myself the time and space and, and grace to do that and to have moments of sadness, to have moments where, you know, I look back and have some of the funniest memories, you know, and all of it is just this process of evolution as women, as humans, as mothers, as sisters and daughters. And so, yeah, that's where I am these days. I love it. I love that you're at this stage. And I just want to take a moment to reflect on what you said about taking the time, because I think Misasha and I joke, right? My kids are in middle school. I can leave them home alone now to go duck out and run an errand or do whatever. And somehow that opens up so much more time. And you're like, Misasha, like, tell me what that's like. <laughs> I know. I'm like, let me live through y'all because yeah, I have elementary school kids. So we're not at, I can see it on the horizon, but we're not there yet. No, I, but I think what I wanted to point out was this yet, right? Misasha, you don't have that kind of time. And yet one of the things I know and admire about you is that you know that you like feeling good and looking a certain way. And you have always taught me, you're like, dude, I have to exercise because that's my sanity and my body strength and my future. And you always are like, I mean, I've never heard you say, I don't have time to pick out a good outfit. Like you look lovely all the time. Whereas... <laughs> I, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't have time. I feel like I'm running around. But what I'm hearing is if you care about something as part of the growing woman process, we should absolutely choose to dedicate the time to that. Because as part of growing, we need to grow and accept where we are, what our values are, and learn that like actually rushing around all day long is not being a solid human being. Yeah. And time is a funny thing, right? Like obviously... Part of that whole first year of me uh, being an empty nester was me trying to figure out where 18 years had gone, right? Like how I still don't know where that time went. But also, Sarah, as you were just saying, like getting ready or, you know, like Miss Lasha, making time for those things that matter most to you. I just think I've also been learning a lot about time, right? And sometimes we tell ourselves like, gosh, I just have so much to do today. I just have all these emails and like we have this mental list and it seems impossible. And sometimes to the point where we're immobilized, where we're, if we just like pause, take the time to write it down. And you're like an hour later, like, oh, I had, it was five emails and yeah, just had like one thing to do. Right. But like the time, sometimes that we even convince ourselves that something is going to take is usually off. 
and wrong, right? And so I think part of that growing and evolving is what we're saying, like just pausing. And if it's important enough to you, just to pause and think about how can I work this into my day? Or is it going to take as much time as I think it's going to take? Because we tell ourselves a lot of lies. We tell our, we convince ourselves of a lot of things that just aren't true. So funny because I was thinking about this yesterday because Sarah knows my boys play a lot of sports. So like they play sports seven days a week. So seven days a week, I'm on a field. When you were saying, Christine, that, you know, you've been thinking about where did those 18 years go? Like, where did they go? And I was thinking about this yesterday because I was thinking about, you know, my day and I had all these things that I needed to do and like these lists of things. And I feel like I was behind on all of those. And my mentality has been to kind of try and do those things while my kids are are somewhere too. So like, I'll be on a field, but I'm trying to like send an email or like look at a document that Sarah and I are going to like use tomorrow or something like that. And I was thinking like, this is where those, like my oldest is 10, you know? And I was like, this is where like a large portion of these 10 years has gone. And what if I were to just sit and I mean, okay, baseball games are real long. So it's like, maybe not the whole game, but just sitting. And it was his last regular season game. And he got this hit. And it was beautiful because he has struggled in playing with kids two years older than him this season. And he got this hit. And had I been on my phone or had I been thinking about something, I wouldn't have seen his smile. I wouldn't have heard the coaches yelling his name, like the whole, the parents were yelling his name. You know, it was beautiful. And one of those moments that I'm going to remember, but I, I think about that, that concept of time too, right? And time when we think about, all these things and how just being present for ourselves, right? When we do the things like put on the clothes and admittedly, I put on a lot of field related clothes these days. So when I can get <laughs> dressed, I'm real excited to get dressed, but also just being there in the those moments, right? That aren't like the, I need to get them through their homework. I need to get them to this place, shuttle them there, but you can just be and that is what I have been trying to reframe towards because I was conditioned for so long to be like every little moment, I need to be doing this. I need to like, I should be multitasking. Right. And then I feel like I miss so much, right? Those years go so fast. I mean, I remember feeling like I am never going to have a Saturday to myself. I mean, Saturday was violin lessons. Then we went to orchestra. Then we, I mean, like, I feel like I should know how to play the violin. That's how, you know, it's pretty, <laughs> I should know how to play y'all, <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden I look up and my kid is in college and she's a music composition major. And I am like watching her compose pieces that the Penn State Orchestra is playing. But to your point, I have so many of those beautiful memories of those Saturdays of sitting there and, you know, it started with a screech, screech, like those were the worst, right? But then they can play their first song and you do, you get to see how proud and excited they are, right? And like when the empty nest years come, because again, like, I mean, that time went so fast. It is beautiful to have those little nuggets and those little moments and those little memories. And I think, you know, time is something that, I mean, I don't know if you can necessarily master it, that, you know, like that kind of mentality. But I do think that you can learn how to make it work 
for you in ways that I think society has conditioned us that are just unhealthy and unnatural, like sort of dismantling that framework. You know, one question I get asked a lot is, how are you able to do so much, right? Like you're working at CLF and, you know, you have this kid's book coming out and then you have this novel coming out, but then I still see you out with your friends having fun and you went on vacation. Like how can you, right? And so part of that process that I went through with the Afro minimalist guide, it really taught me how to be intentional in every area of my life. Started with my closet, started with my home goods, started with how many coffee cups do I really need, (laughs) right? And then it turned into, wow, this is what it feels like to live and dress intentionally. How would it be if I apply and and this disciplined about intentionality in every area of my life? So I'm very intentional about the projects that I choose. I'm very intentional about the social impact work that I do at CLF. I am just very, very intentional with my time. And I think that allows you to see the baseball game and get dressed and do the thing and review whatever, you know, Sarah said, you know, right. But like really carving out these blocks of time that you're super intentional about. And I mean, I am just very disciplined about that, but always leaving some flexibility because you, I mean, can't be too rigid, right? But like everyone knows 5 a.m. It's 5 a.m. writing hour. I'm getting up at five. I'm going to do my writing at five, right? And by eight, I have put in the time that I needed to do. And if I don't get another opportunity to write throughout the day, I have put in the time that I wanted to, to write. You know what I mean? And so I think, you know, it goes back to being intentional about all the things in our lives. I think that's wonderful. Also 5 a.m. I'm like, oh, gulp, is that what it takes? But I love that you do that. (laughs) For me. (laughs) I know it works for you and I love that. But what you also said that I think is important when I talk about time, I think it's important for also people to understand the studies that show that if we want to help one another, one of the biggest and only determinants that they've been able to find so far is whether or not you have the time to do it. They did this whole study where they planted somebody along a path of people who were giving a speech on the Good Samaritan. And half the people were told, hurry up, you have no time, you've got to give it to this other venue across the campus. And this person's, you know, planted there as an actor and needs help. And then the other half of the people were just told, go ahead, you have all the time in the world to give this speech, you know, you'll get there. And even though they were even talking about the Good Samaritan, by far the biggest, no matter all the other variables, it was who had the time, who had the sense of time, who were able to help one another. So I think, like you said, not scheduling every moment, giving yourself that grace allows you not just that time for creativity and intentionality, but also the ability to look out for one another when the opportunity is there. I love that you say that too, because I think part of it is overcommitting right? So I used to overcommit a lot, right? And so a friend might say, you know, hey, you want to do dinner next Saturday or next Sunday? I mean, on the day that I'm looking at next Saturday and next, it's clear, I don't have anything. Yeah, let's do it, right? And then Friday rolls around and I'm like, this was the worst week ever. I just want to sleep in. And then I look at my calendar and I'm like, and I have brunch at 8 a.m. How is this? You know what I mean? And I 
got to a place where I found language. And again, this is rooted in intentionality and being honest and authentic. And I will get requests for stuff all the time. And I'll say, you know, given the unpredictability of my schedule these days, I cannot commit to this event or I cannot commit to meeting up with you, but I will let you know closer to the date. I'll let you know closer to the, you know what I mean? And just like letting folks know like, yes, I'm interested, but I can't commit, right? Especially we all know we have people in our lives that it really is important to them and they really hold us to that yes. So for example, my writer friends, I can cancel on them all the time because they get it, right? Like I can just say like, oh, y'all copy edits. They're like, say less <laughs> and, and we're done, right? But other friends who may not understand you know, just how stressful, you know, the publishing industry can be at times or just how stressful doing social impact work can be at times. I have to be very mindful and respectful of those relationships in a very different way with my commitment, right? Because I also think it's important that we have those moments of time that are sacred for us. I know I said I'm working on a million books, but one of the books that I would love to work on one day is this idea of preparing parents for empty nesting before that time comes, right? Like what I went through that first year was so unnecessary, (laughs) but it was because I just had not mentally or physically prepared myself for what is inevitable. And I think there are these moments in life that are inevitable for many of us. And, you know, this idea that we prepare for them, it's like the idea of Swedish death cleaning, right? Like it sounds so morbid, but it makes perfect sense, right? Like getting your house and your affairs in order for what is inevitable. So you're not burdening the people that you leave behind, right? And I think there are just certain areas where we, can do some mental, physical, spiritual preparation in advance of what we know is coming just so that we are able to be more intentional with that time, space thing, whatever it is when we get it, right? And so I know the space that both of y'all are in. And Masasha, I know it feels like you are a hundred years away from being able to live your <laughs> leave the kids at home just so you can run to Target. <laughs> but I promise you, you are going to look up and blink you know, and that time, that time is there. And that that's definitely what happened to me with Nala. But luckily I said yes to a million projects during the pandemic. And so I have plenty of things to fill my time. Sarah and I were talking about this earlier, y'all, like just how we got through and survived the pandemic. So many of us did so many different things. And for me, it was definitely using work as a form of escapism definitely using writing as a form of escapism. And so, yeah, I have uh, quite a few books coming out this year. (laughs) Which is what I'm so excited to talk about, right? Because you went from this nonfiction book to a young adult fiction novel, basically, right? Which you also co-wrote with a friend. Like, first, can we talk about the content? Because it is a juicy like cross-racial adult woman friendships in this upper crust suburban America. Tell us about this. It is. And it is for us. It is for us, Sarah. It is not for young adults, even though I'm sure young adults are going to read it. Well, not really, because, you know, I do have some young adult stuff coming out. It's very easy to get confused, Sarah. 
lot of stuff coming out. But no, Rebecca, not Becky is the novel that you're um, speaking of. And I'm so excited. I'm writing it with my dear friend, Catherine Wigginton Green. We have both worked in the anti-racism space and DEI space for decades. We have seen a lot. We have heard a lot. And, you know, just came to this conclusion, like we need to start having some real conversations, like a lot of stuff that we came across um, and a lot of stuff like people, we, we would facilitate workshops or, you know, different, have these different training sessions. And we're just like, people just need to have conversations with each other. And so I had this idea for a novel and Rebecca, not Becky was born. And I'm hoping that we'll get a chance to have Catherine on in a few months. The novel comes out in December, but as you all know, it's already just been getting a lot of buzz, which is super exciting. We're in the midst of copy edits right now. So she is copy editing. (laughs) This is her first novel, which is super exciting, but it's been a beautiful process to be able to, you know, talk about basically what the three of us just talked about for the past, you know, 15, 20 minutes or so, which is what it is like to be a woman, a wife, a mother, a sister, a friend, a parent, period, in the midst of what we are experiencing in this world right now, right? From racial disparities to climate challenges, right? And to have these experiences seen through the perspective of one Black mother and one white mother, And, you know, it is rooted in also the comedic side that you all, most folks don't get to see unless you are doing anti-racism work, but there's a lot to laugh about because (laughs) some of it is just pure shenanigans. And so, yeah, this book was born and it is our baby that we birthed together. And I think it's really fun writing it with a friend, you know, like a true friend who is also so close and near and dear to this work. We didn't want to be too preachy and teachy, but there are some lessons in there. And, and, you know, our hope is that black readers will see themselves, white readers will see themselves. We have, I don't want to give away too much. I don't want to get in trouble, but I mean, we're DEI folks. There's everyone is represented in some way (laughs) in this book. And I think it's important to talk about all of these, you know, different nuances and areas of our lives that like, I am not just a black woman, right? Like there are layers and complexities and generational and cultural, all of these experiences that I have that I am bringing with me every place I show up that I'm sitting with at night, right? And so like getting folks to understand who we are beyond just our race and how it influences our decisions and being honest and open about that. That is what that book is about. And yeah, we're excited that it's getting so much buzz. I mean, we have tons of book club interests, tons of other interests that I can't talk about, (laughs) but hopefully in the coming months, be able to share some, you know, really exciting news. And I, I think it speaks to just where we are as a country at this time. I mean, we're seeing it in the social impact space too, right? Like people they're beyond the numbers. Like we want to hear the stories of the people that are being impacted. What'd you do with the dollars, right? Like, oh, great. You raised a million dollars. What'd you do with it? How many lives did you change? How is it going to live beyond this moment? I think we're just at a place where we're ready to get deep and have these real conversations. And so 
we really hope that the book inspires folks to do that. So I'm super curious, having written a book with my best friend, what, how was writing, you know, in partnership with a good friend? What was that process like? It was a hot mess. We were crazy. We had no idea what we were doing. And I think, you know, there were, (laughs) you know, that's part of what made it fun, at least towards the latter end, once we actually had a book together. But I think initially, you know, for me, I'd always written just very siloed and, you know, just it's my book. This is what I'm doing. Right. And so it is a dual narrative. And we joke, we spell dual both ways because it's like, yes, it's a two person narrative, but we were also dueling a little bit as part of this narrative, right? In this book. And I think we learned even a lot about each other and our friendship and, you know, even how we saw some of the issues and topics that are important to us, you know, for example, There was a scene that I wanted to include that was like super heavy. It was uh, around a diversity committee meeting and I went hard (laughs) and the editor was like, um, and Catherine was like, but do we really, I was like, we got to tell it this way because this, you know, and like learning to like, all right, let me hear another perspective. Let's be, you know, so it was a fun, there are many moments that we, have been able to laugh about. We took a lot of screenshots of stuff throughout the process. So we, we just have like this, a scrapbook of pure shenanigans. But in the end, and we were talking about this the other day when we got copy edits, you know, it has made us not just better writers, but just better people going through this process together. And, you know, me understanding what some of the challenges and important touch points that she wanted to weave in for white women her understanding some of the touch points that I wanted to weave in for the Black community that were non-negotiable, not only just saying this is important, but explaining why, right? And so we know it's going to spark some very interesting conversations. And that's what we want. Because, you know, I think if we all want this change, whether it's, you know, from our racial to our climate challenges, we have to be willing to have these honest conversations and move past past the surface talks that we've been having. And so, yeah, hopefully Rebecca, not Becky, will help make that happen. I love it. I'm excited for us to get a copy to, to talk to both of you together and, and dive into it more when you have more ability to talk about it. But you also have Frankie and Friends. Like you have, what other projects? Can you tell us about the other books and the other projects you've got going on? I, now, Frankie and Friends, I can tell you back because that's just mine. So I can tell you all about my stuff, right? <laughs> I also want to share on behalf of Catherine. She did say like, but she's deep in it right now. So definitely don't want her to lose focus. So we will definitely be back to talk to you both about Rebecca, not Becky. But Frankie and Friends is a kid series that I came up with sort of centered around the same thing, right? Getting young folks to really understand what it means to have open and honest conversations, what it means to share open and honest information, right? And I think the best way to really show and teach that is through the lens of journalism. And so Frankie is an adorable little girl who wants to be like her award-winning journalist mama. And so of course, because she's little, she can't go on some of the trips with her mom to report on these news stories. So she decides to have her own news show. And uh, Frankie reports on like things that are important to kids, I should say. Well, I guess that's important to us too, like missing teeth and 
you know, things like that and lost socks, you know, are the, is the washer eating the socks? Is it the dryer eating the socks? But then she also reports on important topics, you know, that we're facing societally. One of the books in the series is called The Big Protest. And it was very important that I write that book because, you know, I would get all these questions from my friends that are parents of young children. How do I talk to them about this? How do I talk to them about this? What do I say? What do I say? You know, they want to go to the protest. How do I say it can be dangerous, you know? And like, I mean, like all of these different things. And so doing it through the lens of Frankie, you know, having her ask her parents and her big sister, some of these important questions, right? She also has this news crew, which are comprised of her toys, kind of like Calvin and Hobbes. They only come alive and talk to her. And so when that bedroom door closes, they have a full on news show. And so it's also fun to weave in some of what children are think, think about some of these things, right? And so for example, you know, Dan, the teddy bear, he may say like, I mean, so what's a protest, you know? And another character might say like, well, obviously it's a test for professionals. You know what I mean? And like really like get parents to understand (laughs) what kids are thinking when they hear some of these things, right? And then in the back of the book is a glossary, all of the words that are, you know, they're defined in the text, but also even more clearly defined in the glossary at the end. And I'm putting together this amazing book swag for these kids. I found many microphones. I saw that you just did like a, an IG reel on that. Super cute. The boxes are looking not minimalist, y'all. They are <laughs> little reporter notepads, you know, but it's just so fun to see kids get so excited about being able to be citizen press, which is what essentially we all are, right? And we have a responsibility to tell honest stories, to, you know, do fact checking, do our research, right? And like getting kids to understand that at a young age, you know, I think it's going to be wonderful for both parents and educators to really weave in those lessons. And again, talk about, you know, some kid, some news that kids can use, like I said, missing teeth and, and also some of those deeper, tougher issues, you know, having a vehicle and a tool for us to have open conversations with young people about these challenges. My question that's coming up now is on top of all of these book projects that you're doing, you also just took this new job and it's a very impactful, important job. And for me, whether it's talking about that within the scope of how much you're able to talk about it, but also how do you continue and how do you put your own Instagram feed, like the content that you produce for your own stuff? How do you process creating content for all of these places? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Well, first of all, so the role that I took on at the Clara Lionel Foundation, which is Rihanna's philanthropic organization, focuses on climate change and climate justice in mainly in the Caribbean, um, but also some climate justice organizations here in the United States. During the pandemic and that empty nest year, you know, I had a lot of time to think about what is it that I wanted to do, right? Like writing, storytelling, writing these books, there were moments that were fulfilling, right? I mean, coming up with the Frankie series, writing those stories is very fulfilling, but I kept having these moments where I didn't feel fulfilled, right? And so I was trying to figure out what was missing. 
And I realized I miss doing social impact work. It has been a part of my life for over two decades. And I miss that. I thought like, oh, I'll be a full-time writer. And it's, I just did not feel fulfilled, right? But I was also very careful about what role I would take on going back into the workforce. I knew everyone was going to expect me to be an EV (laughs) or a CEO somewhere. And I'm like, those days are behind me because my writing is a priority, right? And I narrowed it down to like, I want to do storytelling for black and brown communities. And I would love for it to weave in the experience that I have in energy and environmental law. Right. And I was just very like the drill down and it took a long time to get there. So I don't want you to think I like came up with that overnight, but it was like drilling down, drilling down. What were those parts of social impact work that I missed the most? And then I just shared it with a few close friends. Like if you hear anything, you know, like I'm not putting myself out there and I want to get bombarded with stuff. But if you hear anything that aligns with this work, let me know. And it turned out the Claire Lionel Foundation was looking for its first director of communications. They were looking for someone who would be, you know, willing and open to lead storytelling for social impact work. And I was like, no, this is like a dream job. Like, how does this even happen? And so lo and behold, there it was. And I started in November of last year It was the Clara Lionel's Foundation, their 10-year anniversary. And so I got, I was right in the middle of storytelling for social impact for that. And then, you know, the Super Bowl was huge. And then uh, we also launched a withstand campaign. And so, yeah, it's just been a joyful, a joyful experience. And it allows, it gives me that balance, right? It, I do feel fulfilled. I don't feel overwhelmed. Right. And I think there were many times in the past that I would be trying to do multiple things that brought me fulfillment, but over, I was overcommitted. Right. Like, so for example, if I were an ED of an organization like this, it would just be too much. Right. But being able to just focus on storytelling for social impact, it directly aligns with the work that I do. And I think when I weave that into social media, I mean, I'm also. very intentional about social media. I only have an Instagram account. I have a LinkedIn account, but I feel like it's not really social media, (laughs) right? Uh, I use an air quotes there, but you know, there are times that I'm able to post regularly and there are times that, that I'm not, you know, and there were definitely a few months earlier in the year when I just decided to come up with these weekly abstracts, right? It would just like, let me tell y'all what is happening this week, you know? And so like people knew what I was reading, what I was listening to, what I was writing and, you know, what my mantra was for the week. Um, and that allowed me to still be engaged and in touch with my community, but not beholden to, you know, posting every day. I had a friend tell me one time, and this is like at the height of social media, which we saw during the pandemic, just like this rush and need for content all the time. And, you know, she's like, we, we just have to remember, like, social media is an extension of the work. It is not the work, right? Like, it's just not the work. <laughs> it's an extension of the work. And there definitely were some moments during my, that af- the height of Afro-minimalism, where social media felt like my job, 
in that I did not like. And again, everything rooted in intentionality. I spoke with my agent and I was like, I am willing to start an entire new Instagram. <laughs> and she was like, I don't think you need to do that. She's like, just change your handle. I was like, okay, because I'm done with that, right? I'm like, we can have an Afro minimalist page that is dedicated to the book. And I, you know, still, you know, check that feed. I post there occasionally. I respond to DMs in there all the time. I love knowing that that book is still changing hearts and minds and lives. But I am Christine Platt was definitely me reclaiming who I am as a, as a woman, as a writer, and all of my interests and not feeling like I had to be stuck just being the Afro-minimalist, just posting content about my house, right? Again, it goes back to there are so many layers and complexities to me, and social media is my free way <laughs> of sharing that with the world, right? And I think, you know, remembering, like, I don't owe anyone on there anything. All of us, when we started our social media accounts, it was an opportunity for us to engage with our friends and find like-minded people. And I've met some amazing people. I've made some lifelong friendships through social media, right? But it was never intended, when at least when I signed up, to be this thing that took on hours out of my day. And I had to reclaim that time. And so algorithm, you know, the algorithm on algorithm, let it do it. I don't care. <laughs> you know, in real life, my people know how to find me and what I'm doing. And I, you know, I think it has created social media has created this false sense of currency. And, you know, you just kind of have to break out of that matrix. And so you know, that's where I am with that. And I have a team that helps with the social media for Claire Alano Foundation. So I'm not creating that content. So I will share that. That is fair. But on my own page, yeah, you, I mean, I'm sure you all have seen. Sometimes I post regularly and sometimes you might not hear from me for a few days, a few weeks, because I just don't have the time. That's not how I want to spend my time. I love that. Well, Sarah knows how I feel about um, social media. So she because <laughs> I, I don't have it except for LinkedIn, the LinkedIn, right? And uh, mm -hmm. as I was hearing you talk too, I, I think that's a testament to the growing, right? Being a growing woman and that evolution is all part of that as well. So I, I love that because I think there's so much, so much there. And I think we could also talk for hours with you as we are, are known to do. No, but I want to find out before we end, you know, what else haven't we discussed? Because I'm sure you've got 25 more projects or, you know, some uh -huh. in like your top piece of advice about being an empty nester, like anything that you want to share with our listeners. We want to hear for sure. Oh, man. Ah, you know, I think lately what I've been doing is really reflecting on the past three years, right? I think we've almost been forced to re-enter society. <laughs> and I realize like there are parts of that time that I want to hold on to, like some of that solitude, some of that sacredness, some of that like really learning how to honor and be good to myself that I want to hold on to. And then there are some habits and behaviors that I, you know, have recognized were not healthy, but then also, again, extending myself some grace and saying like, I mean, this is, that's what you felt like you had to do 
to survive this time, right? And so I think I've been doing a lot of just revisiting the height of the pandemic, you know, rethinking, reimagining all sorts of parts and aspects of my life. And that is, that's been, it's kind of where my head has been at lately. Um, and so I have moments where I still very much love to, to be at home, um, but also realize like, wow, one more year. And I probably would have been a recluse and it would have been, and I would have been okay with that. <laughs> right. And so like also committing myself to make sure I get outside and to make sure that I, you know, engage with friends and family and, you know, re-enter society, but also in my own way and in my own pace, right? I've, I've had friends where, you know, we'll be at an event together and they are like in full on panic. But I'm like, are you okay? And I like, this is my first event since the pandemic. And I just haven't been around all these people. You know what I mean? Like, I think we have to be aware of ourselves and be honest and true to ourselves. And, you know, in those moments, I'll tell people like, you know, it's okay to leave. You can leave, you know, or if you want to stay, I'm happy to stay by your side. And like, you know, I think we're in a place where we just need more human connection in a way that is honest and authentic, not just in those folks that we're in community with, but also with ourselves. AI has also been something that has been on my mind. I feel so old when I am like, is suspect, feel suspect, right? Like, and so again, learning to learn more about AI and, you know, not allow myself to live in fear about something that is already here to be more knowledgeable about it, to allow myself to explore conspiracy theories, because that's what I love to do anyway. Right. And just, yeah, like just sort of re-immersing myself into the realities of our modern day world that I literally, and I'm not exaggerating, was in a whole bubble during the pandemic. Like I used home and writing as a form of escapism because mentally I could not process what was happening outside and in the world without it destroying me. Right. And so I am learning, you know, again, to let that air out of my bubble slowly. And uh, so far, so good. I feel like it's going good. Well, I'm super glad to hear that it's going well. I love your visiting of the word connection. That was actually the theme of the World Happiness Summit that I was at in March. And I see so much in the world of wellness talking about the importance of connection. And as you said, both within ourselves and then also with those around us who are important to us. And I think bringing that lens of intentionality that you started this conversation with to the connections that we have or the ones that we want to build stronger as we sort of fortify ourselves and, and emerge back into the world is a really smart idea. So I appreciate you sharing all of this with us. Where can people find you? You can find me online at christineplatt.com. And on Instagram at I am Christine Platt. Um, no promises on how often I'll be posting, but I am. <laughs> I am active on there. And yeah, and in the coming months, you know, I'll be doing the Frankie and Friends launch, uh, book launch. Frankie and Friends comes out in October. And then Rebecca Not Becky comes out in December. Um, and there's actually the second book in the Frankie and Friends series is The Big Protest, um, which will align well with Rebecca, not Becky. And so hopefully parents and kids will be able to 
have some some deep conversations with both of those books coming out around the same time. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to connect with us today. I really appreciate it. I know. It's so good to see y'all. And I can't wait to catch up in a few months. I cannot wait to send you advanced reader copies of Rebecca, Not Becky. As soon as I have them in my hands, you all are first on the list. And, you know, I think this was a good break from my copy edits for me. (laughs) I'm happy to you know, have spent this time with y'all this afternoon and going to get back to work so I can make sure we can get this book in readers' hands. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.